Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney with the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, what is happening in the Coast Guard and why are volunteers resigning? The people in management have done great things, absolutely no question about that. PPE has been improved, vehicles, boats, training. The biggest part of the tragedy is the personnel issues are the one failing. It's like a blind spot. That's John O'Mahony, chairman of the newly formed Irish Coast Guard Volunteers Representative Association. The first time there's been such an organisation to represent the volunteers who are the operational core of the Coast Guard. He'll be outlining in detail why this association has been formed. And it's not just seagulls that are showing changes in their behaviour, as Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland will explain. So, what's going on? Well, part of it is what scientists refer to as confirmation bias. Gulls have always been a feature of urban locations in Ireland, particularly in areas close to the coast, and their appearance in places such as Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Galway and Waterford is nothing new. We'll also hear how anglers have been dealing with the weather they've faced as we focus on Ireland's maritime sphere. The sea around our coastline, our lakes and rivers, which are all part of Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. Socially and economically, they're vital because Ireland's connection with the sea is as old as time itself. There is a long history attached to what is now the Irish Coast Guard, going back to the British administration of Ireland and the unsuccessful attempt by Tom Casement, brother of Roger Casement, to establish a new Irish Coast Guard when the Irish Free State was formed in 1922. The following year, he was actually appointed the first inspector of what was named the new Coast Lifesaving Service. There was political reluctance to use the British title. Since then, the Lifesaving Service has been called the Coast and Cliff Rescue, Slaunua, the Irish Marine Emergency Service, and then back to the Irish Coast Guard, using two words for Coast Guard in the title, where the British approach had been a single word. That was approved by the government in August 1990 and established in the then Department of the Marine by Minister Dr Michael Woods. I remember being in the courtyard at Dublin Castle at the formal launch. Volunteers are at the core of the service, but over the past few years there have been increasing reports of disagreement in units at several locations around the coast between management and volunteers. Dismissals and units stood down for various reasons. The latest of these is the Doolan unit in County Clare, of which Catriona Lucas was a member when she lost her life during a search for a man missing in Kilkey. And it was at a meeting in Kilkey in the past two weeks that the Irish Coast Guard Volunteers Representative Association was launched. Just over a week, before the standing down of the Doolin unit, where a number of members resigned. So what is happening in the volunteer structure of the Irish Coast Guard, a vital life-saving service? John O'Mahony is chairman of the association. 
He's from West Cork, where I met him at Curls Rock on the edge of the causeway across the Ross Carberry estuary. That location is where he was a member of the towhead unit that responded to an emergency call-out when he was a member of that unit in his earlier days as a volunteer. The causeway itself is part of Irish history, built as a military road by the British administration in the late 1700s, when a French invasion of Ireland was threatened. It was a bright autumnal day, with clouds billowing across the sky as we discussed the volunteer issues in the Irish Coast Guard. When I joined the Coast Guard, I think it was probably 28 years ago, um, I had been... I work in the marine sector anyhow. I work in uh, f- electronics in the fishing industry and I had worked in Castle Bay for several years, about a decade, and then I moved back to Skibbereen and joined the local Coast Guard unit, which was the Towhead Coast Guard unit. At the time it was Towhead Coast and Cliff Rescue. Currently became the IMES, Irish Marine Emergency Services, which in the year 2000, I think, is what the Coast Guard, it was formed out on the basis of the Irish Marine Emergency Services volunteer units and the buildings around the country, etc. Um, I had been a member of the Defence Forces of the Army in the past and I brought a lot of that experience into the Coast Guard And um, in terms of even though we learned how to abseil and I had done a lot of that. But it it was beneficial, navigation, radio training, etc. and it all benefited me and I believe the unit over the years. And um, after um, probably about seven, eight, ten years, I, be- I became uh, the deputy officer in charge of the unit, for, and I served in that position for seven years. And um, then I voluntarily stood down as the DOIC. I was close to, I think, getting 59, 58, 59, and uh, I decided that, look, leave it to someone else. And um, that and a lot of changes at the top, um, Changed the, changed the dynamic in the unit and changed and caused a lot of issues that have come to the fore in the past, in, in the recent while. And um, it's only when many of us, what are now called the grey-haired, retired, disgruntled members of the Coast Guard, it's only when some of us talk together on Zoom that we found that, well, it isn't the local issues that... Um, we should be focusing on it's what it's the failure of management to help us and the failure of management well they're sending off too much legislation too many changes too much too many emails you know um, volunteers can't cope with the amount of change that is being sent being a member of the coast guard in a voluntary capacity and in the local area all local areas being a volunteer is a commitment to the community and there's a pride in being a volunteer. Many people tell me that's why they joined the Coast Guard as volunteers, well, to that, give to their local community. I mean, that's absolutely true. You're, you're perfectly correct. Uh, I mean, all of the volunteers, uh, every volunteer is a good person. They take time out of their own working life. They go. There are times when it might take you an hour or two if there was a call out. There are other times when it can be 21 days of commitment. Not every day, not every hour of, the, of it, but you're committed for those 21 days, 28 days even. And it is voluntary. We get an expense payment and it's, it's not, you would not join the Coast Guard or any other voluntary services for the money you make out of it. It certainly wouldn't. Over the last several months, even a year or two, 
People have been dismissed from the Coast Guard for various reasons. Very often they say because of difficulties or disagreements with management over operational and safety. But one common factor came across to me from all of them. All who were dismissed were very upset because they reflected upon them as people in their community. And that was the core of a lot of upset, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I mean, we've had some recent meetings, online meetings by Zoom and we had never really met before because we couldn't because we, we were at a distance from each other. We didn't know who, where the problems were, and which units had problems. We would hear rumours. But when we got some people onto Zoom, and in, in one particular instance, a man who got a WhatsApp message in the afternoon came to the Zoom meeting in the evening and he gave us his story. He was a, an officer on the south coast and his story, he ended with, they destroyed my life. Now that was someone who had given maybe 20 years of commitment at a high level and to hear someone like that saying they destroyed my life. Another example from the west coast of Ireland of a man who went a long way in court with the Coast Guard until they settled, said there was no one to turn to, no place to turn to. There was no one to speak to when he had problems. He was on his own and he went the legal route. It cost him a lot of money. He got a settlement in that he was allowed to rejoin his unit. Uh, I can speak about it because he's free, you know, openly and freely expressed this to us. And when you hear that, it's really, really unnecessary as far as I'm concerned and as far, as far as we in the association we have established are concerned. Dialogue, you know, conversations in the early stage of some of these conflicts would resolve most of this. There is a core of all of that in that at one stage there was an attempt to get the department and the minister to recognise the role of the volunteers which is essential in the Coast Guard but it was decided that they couldn't be they wouldn't be regarded in the same fashion obviously as employees but given no recognition that hurt members well if, since since I've been I, I spent 25 years with very few problems in that we did have problems and we had some in some ways some members at the time could have done with assistance from someone like us and unfortunately it meant that in particular one member left the left the organization and that that's just something that I now know should have that person should have had more help from particularly from his fellow members of the, of the it was the IMES I believe at the time but over the years I've heard many attempts have been made to establish something like this and we hear a lot now from some of the members who are closer to each other, who went a long way, for example, speaking to unions, who went a long way, but all the time there was pushback. And when Minister Ross went into the Dáil in 2019 and in a reply to the Shannad, um, he focused on the COAG and suggested that the COAG was the dispute resolution mechanism used in the Coast Guard. The COAG is a group of volunteers, principally it was Formerly it was volunteer officers. I believe re recently there are some volunteers who are not the officer status are on the COAG. So it's, it's the COAG is the Coastal Unit Sector Advisory Group, I think. And um, these people have never intervened in any dispute resolution. They have not participated in anyone. Yet the minister can go into the Dáil and say this. The director of the Coast Guard or the acting director equally went to the Dáil and made a very large statement 
in which he su suggested the same thing. He first of all suggested that there was a very, very low number of disputes called grievance applications in less than 1%, which was, we know from anecdotal evidence and also from our own, that that was totally underplaying the type of disputes that, that they were aware of at the time. But there's always been pushback against any form of union, association, other than their own COEG. But the COEG has been used to a certain extent by management as an excuse to not allow any form of association such as the one we have just established. There has been huge improvement obviously over the years in the Coast Guard. The equipment, the mechanisation has changed, the call-out systems from the old days. So what is the new association going to do? Well, first of all, I would just reply to the first part of your... The Coast Guard, the people in management have done great things, absolutely no question about that. There is PPE has been improved, vehicles, boats, training, and that is the, part, the biggest part of the tragedy is that what, the personnel issues are the one failing. It's like a blind spot that they have, and it's like that there's a, a group think in Dublin or in, in headquarters that prevents them from seeing, seeing the issues. We appreciate the work they've done, and we would love to, most of us would love not to have ever been in trouble the way we are. We never intended being in trouble. Several members ended up in the position they are because they tried to um, advocate for another member. Um, that's in several instances that's been right throughout the the Fisher report is something perhaps we could speak about in a moment because that is something that has devastated some units throughout the country it has not affected others but it has it has written off some units and it's something that we as an as an association would like to pick up on well, when we established the association it was out of a need we came together Initially, there was six, seven of us um, from uh, from the west coast, the south coast, and we slowly widened it out as one member, why don't we speak to this person? And we slowly widened it out, and it became 20, and it became 30, and it became many more. Now, many of the members that are in the association that are declared members, we have declared our position because we are prepared to do it. We have many, many supporters in units who are not prepared to. We've told them, don't don't declare your membership, don't declare your willingness to be a member because the Coast Guard will try to do something about it. They will try to exclude you from the Coast Guard. They, you will not go on training courses. You will be in some ways, you may not be demoted, but you certainly won't be promoted. And we know that this is happening, has happened, and probably, and well, we hopefully it won't happen because we hope the Coast Guard will listen to us. But we have a wide it spread support within Coast Guard units. And we are small in numbers at the moment. Many people are former members. Some are current members. Some are young current members. So we are keeping it like that because we are saying to people, we're not trying to get hundreds on board because first of all, we haven't the ability to deal with them because GDPR puts certain requirements and restrictions on what we can do. We have to set up a secure database there's a lot of challenges like that, but we know that the support is out there for us. And it's our intention to take that support and bring it forward. And we, have asked, we are asking for a meeting with the minister. 
and with Minister Hildegard Nocton in particular, who has been, we've been told, is the minister responsible for us. So we have, we're actually, these days, sending that request to the minister. As in all organisations, there probably would be not everybody agree with your motives and your moves and might disagree, as, as you said. And you have said quite clearly how management has improved things. That Fisher report you referred to is something which management said, I mean, favoured their opinions, wasn't it? Well, the Fisher report, what we, we now believe that the Fisher, Fisher report, the very early draft of the Fisher report was not, didn't suit even the department it was we don't know for sure because we, we've never seen it but we believe that the Fisher report was edited and adapted by the Coast Guard management to suit their to suit their aims we were the same people then we were rescuing the same doing the same type of rescues we didn't have the PPE that we have today we didn't have the vessels the vehicles we had to have today but we were able to respond um, in fact one of my first rescues of our recoveries was in Ross Carberry and it's probably about 27, 28 years ago and we were able to affect that. With a, it wasn't that long because we did have a D-class. It was our first D-class and it was a Coast Guard issued vessel and we were able to do that before those people came in. We were able to do it with, with the original staff that were in the Coast Guard and we were able to competently do it. There was a large group of us. There was Gardaí there, there was local people there. We were, we were just part of it, as, and that is generally the way it is. We're only a component of any, in any rescue or recovery. There's always many other agencies involved, and because we're just pleased to have been able to participate. But we, have, we do have a professionalism. We bring a professionalism to those rescues and recoveries, and that's one of the, the reasons we are there, to bring that. What do you hope, or what do ye hope, will come from this association which you set up in Kilkee where you had a ceremony also marking that tragedy that happened there with Catriona Lucas. What do you hope will come from this association? Well, we are looking for recognition of our association as a group that can represent the volunteers in any conversation with management. And we would hope, we have said, we, we wish to sit down with management. We don't want to be adversaries. We want to be, to work with them. And we believe, we believe we're good people. We know that they are capable of being, that they are good people, but we, we're not certain why, what has to happen, what is happening has to happen. Now we do know that the, the, the accident that happened in Kilkee where Katrina did lose her life and also the rescue 116, these have brought a lot of pressure in the department and the Coast Guard management, but we shouldn't suffer because of that. Those things happened, they have to be dealt with. We have the resources to deal with those. We, we should speak openly, we should speak, we should see what happened, learn lessons from it and make sure it didn't happen again. It, it was a tragedy, it was a shock to all of us to see that with the best of equipment, the dry suit she had, the helmet she had, all of the equipment, that this accident still happened and that someone could lose their life was a shock to us. John O'Mahony, Chairman of the Irish Coast Guard Volunteers Representative Association. A spokesman for the Department of Transport, which has responsibility for the Coast Guard, told me... Ongoing consultation with the Coast Guard volunteers is key to the success of the Coast Guard. 
For this reason, Coast Guard volunteers have for some time had a representative body called the Coastal Unit Advisory Group. This group represents Irish Coast Guard volunteers and provides advice and input to the Coast Guard under terms of reference agreed between management and the volunteers. I must make it clear that the volunteer issues we've been discussing do not have relevance to the R116 helicopter tragedy, about which the investigation report has just been published. Seagulls have got a lot of bad publicity, accused of harassing people, attacking them, stealing food. But seagulls are just gulls generally, and have humans got some responsibility for causing such conflict? Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland discusses whether the gulls are losing the run of themselves. In recent years, and especially over the past 12 months, Birdwatch Ireland has been inundated with emails, letters, phone calls and social media messages about gulls in urban areas. Many of these are complaints, others are expressions of concern, and some are from people who want to know how to help these birds. Dublin and Waterford are the cities most frequently mentioned to us. The reports have also come in from many other cities and towns across the country. So, what's going on? Well, part of it is what scientists refer to as confirmation bias. Gulls have always been a feature of urban locations in Ireland, particularly in areas close to the coast, and their appearance in places such as Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Galway and Waterford is nothing new. In many cases, people may have subconsciously overlooked the gulls, but they've always been there. Once they hear others discussing them, or read news reports about them, suddenly they, too, start to spot gulls, and believe that this is something that began just recently. Now, while the presence of gulls in our coastal cities is nothing new, some of their behaviour certainly is, and these behavioural changes are perhaps the main reason that people are concerned or unhappy with the bird's presence. There are really two major issues which need to be considered separately. One is the increasing number of gulls, and a species called the herring gull in particular, nesting on urban rooftops. The other is the fact that some gulls have learned to associate humans with food and are begging or even stealing it from people as they eat outdoors. I'll address both of these phenomena shortly, but before I do, I would like you to notice that, until this point, I have deliberately avoided using the term seagull. This is because, while all of our Irish gull species are often keen to live in coastal and marine habitats, and indeed some do so exclusively, many are by no means compelled to be near seawater. Some, such as the black-headed gull, the lesser black-backed gull and the aforementioned herring gull, habitually travel and even breed well inland, feeding along our inland waterways and often occurring well away from water. A catch-all term like seagull is misleading, therefore, and can lead people mistakenly to believe that encountering gull away from the coast is a cause for concern. It also masks the fact that Ireland is home to over a dozen different species of gull, all of which have their own distinct appearances, habitats and behaviours. With increasing numbers of gulls nesting on rooftops in some areas, we're seeing them coming into conflict with people as never before. Many object to the loud calls that they make, especially early in the morning, and also to their territorial nature. Gulls are very protective parents and will swoop and scream at any human whom they think is too close to their nest. This has even led to calls for gulls to be culled in some locations, something that, it's important to point out, would be illegal under both national and EU law. This antisocial nesting behaviour only occurs during the summer months. The phenomenon of urban feeding, however, is a year-round problem. A small minority of herring gulls, in particular, have learned that humans often have food, and also that our overflowing bins and black plastic refuse sacks can provide easy meals. Their aggressive behaviour is understandably worrying to people. These are not signs of birds that are thriving, 
or that are losing the run of themselves, as politicians and the media often put it. Rather, they are signs of species in crisis. Far from increasing in number, as many people assume, Ireland's herring gulls have suffered a decline of 90% over the course of just 30 years. As their offshore nesting islands have become overrun with non-native predators, such as rats and mink, and as increasing numbers of human visitors have been traipsing through their breeding colonies, so some have decided that tall buildings, or urban islands as they must see them, are a safer bet for their precious eggs and chicks. To compound their woes, as our marine ecosystems deteriorate, fish disappear, plastic pollution abounds and climate change disrupts ocean currents, so they must resort to scavenging food in our towns and cities. The gulls themselves are not the problem. Their rapidly changing behaviour is instead a symptom of a much larger problem and clear evidence of an ecological crisis that is poised to affect the lives and livelihoods of us humans too, as well as many other species. Rather than bow to pressures for apparent quick-fix solutions such as culls and nest destruction, Bertrand is urging governments to protect the gulls' nesting grounds, to reduce emissions, to eliminate plastic pollution, to support our marine ecosystems, and to realise that the gulls are shouting a warning to us that we would be fools not to heed. We also urge people not to feed gulls, so that they don't learn to associate our species with easy handouts and retain their healthy, natural wariness of us. At the end of the day, it's not the gulls' behaviour that's the real problem. It's ours. Ireland's birds need your help. If you'd like to support efforts to conserve and protect both them and their habitats, please become a member of Birdwatch Ireland, Ireland's largest and most active conservation charity. With Christmas on the horizon, it's worth noting that Birdwatch Ireland membership also makes a great gift. For full details, please visit www.birdwatchireland.ie. Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland with the benefit of his experience of the nature of birds, discussing seagulls and gulls. And just referring to Dublin Bay, which we mentioned, there's a new series called Uncoon on TG4. It's being shown in four parts on Wednesdays at 9.30pm and follows a year-long look at Dublin Bay, one of Ireland's most fascinating and unique ecosystems in the country. The series has stunning cinematography of the bay and its wildlife, including gulls, which of course can feed on fish. And that takes us to anglers. And angling is a huge sport and activity in Ireland. Miles Kelly is at Fisheries Ireland, the state agency for protecting, managing and conserving our inland fisheries and sea angling resources. So what's happening in the angling sector, Miles? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me back again. It's been a busy month for anglers and there's a lot to fill you in on. First of all, October was pretty mild this year. Average temperatures were well above the norm, so anglers were happy to fish for longer, and more importantly, the fish kept biting. The month finished up being really wet and windy though, and it can't be overemphasized just how these weather events can impact the fishing. Down in Lockaloo and County Cork, the cold rain fell so hard and for so long that not only was the level of the lake raised, but the water temperature plummeted. Unfortunate news for the pike anglers fishing a competition the next day, who found that the pike had been fairly active, had gone into a sulk with the sudden cold. They could hardly buy a bite. As you'd expect at this time of year, most of our reports are coming from the pike fishing community. Kevin Lyons of Melview Fishing Lodge is making up for lost time this year, and he's over the moon to be welcoming back groups of happy overseas anglers to Longford. Also thrilled to welcome back some overseas angling tourists was Bodo Funk of Angling Services Ireland. His guests are getting some great fishing in Roscommon. And in the West, a German angler fishing with his grandchildren has been enjoying some super fishing while staying with Lakeland Angling Centre on Loch Carb. There were a couple of course angling festivals at opposite ends of the country towards the end of the month. 
The long-delayed Feeder Fest event, which was cancelled in 2020, finally took place on Inniscarra Reservoir in County Cork. Tony Hopkins was head and shoulders above the other 59 competing anglers there. In Monaghan, a scaled-down Halloween festival took place on Mukno, and Rory O'Neill came out top of the pile. I was saying earlier about the cold rainfall hitting that pike competition in Lochalua. Well, everyone knows just how important it is for anglers to have their excuses lined up for when the fish fail to materialise on the end of their lines. At the weekend, the Munster course anglers were due to fish a venue at O'Brien's Bridge in County Clare. Access is through a lock gate, but despite looking for the key that had been left for them in all the usual places, they couldn't find it. So they ended up fishing a less productive spot, a spot that was always going to fish poorly given the cold flood of water that was surging through. And sure enough, it did fish poorly and hardly anything was caught. But they were all sure they'd have done well if they could have only gotten into the spot they wanted to fish. Anyway, on the way back to their cars, one of the lads noticed a plastic bag in the field and thinking it was a bit of litter that someone fishing had dropped and had blown away, he headed off to retrieve it only to find out it was a well-chewed bit of plastic and a well-chewed key. The consensus was that a hungry fox had taken the key that had been left out for them. A sort of dog ate my homework story, or you could say they were outfoxed. Finally, a bit of news for salmon anglers and anyone else interested in this iconic fish species. 20 years ago, we introduced the wild salmon and sea trout tagging scheme to manage the fishery. You know, in terms of bag limits, open and closed rivers, tagging and all that. And in that time, there have been numerous shifts in the catch numbers and the rivers opening, the rivers closing, depending on fish returns. More recently, we've seen a seismic shift towards buying and selling online with many technological advances along the way that we'd like to harness. And as we're undertaking a review of the tagging system, we see this as the perfect opportunity for the public and especially those involved in the angling sector to have their say on the management of how licenses, tags and log books are issued and distributed in the future. In other words, how can Inland Fisheries Ireland make the tagging system as user friendly as possible in the future and a better service for all? The public consultation for the Wild Salmon and Sea Trout Tagging Scheme closes at 5pm on Wednesday, December 1st and members of the public are invited to make submissions. Find out more at fisheriesireland.ie. That's all I have this week, Tom. Tight lines. Thanks, Miles. Always a pleasure to have you aboard. And so we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland radio show, which was broadcast on 18 local community radio stations around Ireland. In Cork on CRY 104FM Yall, West Cork FM, Bear Island Radio and UCC Radio. Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Galway on Connemara Community Radio and the Kinvara FM. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio and in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM Belmullet. On Southwest Clare Radio, that's Radio Kirk of Boschkeen. On West Limerick, 102 FM and Tip Midwest Radio in Tipperary. There are podcasts on Apple, Mixcloud, Spotify and the marinetimes.ie and several other sources. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the maritime community. Your views on any item in the programme are most welcome. Email to maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Our website is tommaxsweedymarine.ie. Phone and text 0872 
0872-555-197. That's 0872-555-197. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. More marine news on Twitter. And please do remember, the maritime sector matters. Until our next programme, the usual wish of fair sailing.